Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners. Today's episode of Humane Podcast includes Daniel Pianco, the managing partner at Achieve Partners. Daniel Pianco and I have get to know each other through a few colleagues in New York City. And in fact, as a principal data scientist at Galvanize, I found out that Daniel, you as well, have been on our Galvanize campus in New York City when we had our massive location at the Hudson Square area and uh, have been involved with Galvanize over the years. So thanks so much for joining us today on Humane. My pleasure. I think I was the longest serving uh, person involved in Galvanize, actually, since 2013. It's amazing to see the educational market. I mean, it's gone through so many evolutions. You know, as you mentioned, you know, we look at a lot of these boot camps like General Assembly and Galvanize. They've been around since 2012 and 2013. And now here we are almost eight years later. We've seen so much consolidation, growth, development. I'd love to hear from your perspective as someone who's invested and built companies. What do you see about the educational market today? If there's one thing that COVID is going to do, it's kind of a massive experiment in taking millions and millions of learners online in the space of a week. Almost every college has shut down its campus. 
almost every K-12 uh, school system has sent their kids home. Schools are just basically putting everything on Zoom, which is not the way to run a railroad. This is not the way to run online education. Usually online education, good online education is heavily curated. There's a lot, a lot of different learning components that get brought in, um, but we've sort of pushed everything online. And I think what that's going to do is it's actually interesting. Online education sort of peaked in the U.S. at about 30%. So roughly 30% of people were getting some of their education online, and it basically peaked. And it had a huge growth through the late 90s, 2000s. And then about four or five years ago, it basically stopped growing. This is going to be, I think, you're going to go from 30 to maybe 50% of people getting their uh, content online. So I think you're going to go through sort of a second massive evolution revolution in in learning at all levels, as people realize that they what they thought they could only do in person, they can do online. Even for us, you know, we have you know, dozens of companies in, in our portfolio and prior funds portfolios, and even ones that said, oh, we're 100% in-person, experiential, in two weeks, they're online. And I think that's really innovation, um, but I think it's V1 of online. You know, everyone's just put everything on Zoom, the ones that weren't kind of prepared. And I think as people realize they don't have to be in person, they're going to now take make the investment to make those online environments even more robust, even more like uh, replacements for the in-person so that the world can uh, spend more of their time in more socially distanced ways. That being said, I don't think in-person education is going to go away. You know, it, this is um, universities are our society's oldest institutions. Besides the Catholic Church, the first university was formed in 1088 in Bologna. And basically ever since then, universities have been an integral part of the social fabric. I don't think they're going away. K-12 education in its modern format started about 150 years ago. I don't think it's going to go away. If anything, I think the shift online is going to make these systems more robust and more prepared for the 21st century. You know, as we look at online technology, uh, you know, even at Galvanize, we've been making an extra focus for online programs. We've always had online programs, but now it's been, you know, everywhere from enterprise to consumer to government uh, focusing online. And one of the really interesting things is I came across an, an article recently of, of an industry leader focused on, you know, just online delivery. Like, how do you deliver sales and education and all these different parts of a business? And what this leader said is that Microsoft team is not good for online yet. And I said, this is so fascinating. I dived into the article. And what it said is when you look at software like Zoom and WebEx and go to webinar, all of them have very powerful annotation tools, such as raising your hand, highlighting, dragging squares, laser pointers. Microsoft Teams doesn't have that yet. So I think it's so interesting that online education is not just about you know the modality of being online and being either synchronous or asynchronous, but also what tools you're using to enable that learning. Yeah, and the tools are critical. And and you know, I don't think I've had this back and forth with a friend of mine, Michael Furtick, a Silicon Valley investor, and he's basically like, why isn't EdTech competing with Zoom? And the reality is, EdTech isn't going to compete with Zoom. You know, Apple is going to be the the choice. Google, they're going to be in the schools. It's virtually impossible. Almost no ed tech platform has their own video interface, for example. But Zoom is never going to build out the ecosystem that's required to actually run an online school. Let me give you one example from, from our portfolio, Packback. This basically grades online discussion boards, right? So 
every almost every online education system that's outside of Zoom, right, or better than Zoom, will require some interaction online between people. And Packback uses a, an AI system to basically put it up, thank you, basically uses AI to allow professors to grade online discussion. Because it doesn't, you know, you're not actually looking to grade very detailed work like, a, um, you know, but you really want to make sure that students are actually engaging. They're not copying from somewhere else. They're not just saying yes as their post. You know, the big criticism of, of, of online education was that these online discussion boards, you know, a student just had to post. They just had to type, you know, yes, and then that would qualify as their post for the day. Well, you know, that doesn't quite work. Uh, and it also doesn't quite work to, um, you know, just copy something that someone else wrote. So AI is actually really, really good. And no professor wants to read through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of comments. It's not really good use of the professor's time. So companies like uh, uh, Packback are creating these tools that use AI to radically improve the experience. So I think as you, you know, the, the Microsoft Teams example is good. I, I deleted Microsoft Teams as soon as it got stuck on my desktop. You know, I don't think any ed tech company is going to actually compete with Zoom or WebEx or any of these other well-utilized systems. But instead, it's all these tools around that platform. You know, it's so interesting, Daniel, that you brought that up about what Packback's doing for the automation of grading for these discussion threads. You know, even at uh, Galvanize, you know, on our Learn platform, we actually have uh, something similar where we do some of the automation, you know, behind the scenes, we're using things like containers, we're using certain JavaScript-based scripts, we're using certain packages in Python to do that with these like MB grader systems. And what I found so fascinating is the online grading and self-assessment and automation space really got started with turnitin.com, I think, many, many years ago. And a lot of us remember this from our high school and college days of essays and plagiarism. But now, as you mentioned, with Packback leading the way and a lot of other companies, especially as we're continuing to shift to online education, this is going to be ever more critical for teacher assistants and teachers to be able to effectively go through material so that they can support students with success and not too many hours on things that could be automated. Yeah, I remember we developed this for Galvanize. I mean, and you just go to Code Academy or any, you know, and, and I, you know, we invested a lot of money, uh, Galvanize, in, in building this this platform. And I think we were ahead of the curve. And I think that's why the Galvanize, you know, online learning environment was so successful and, and I hope continues to be successful. And I, I think that though most people don't have Python coders on their teams. And so most, you know, you, you, Galvanize is unique because it's a coding bootcamp, but think about your average K-12 school. Think about your average university, right? You're not building enterprise-grade software for those organizations. And so I think that Galvanize is a unique example where we invest in their own. I think most people are going to do it themselves. I'm, I want to take one second. I think one of the most interesting and scary pieces to the move to online learning is that in general, online environments reward scale. Amazon.com, Google, right? The law of, you know, the, the leader in a space gets two thirds of the market. The second gets 20%. That's Bing, right? Google, Bing. And then everybody else shares like the last 20%. And you look at this across the U.S. economy, you're seeing technology bring massive consolidation. And that is happening in education because in order to make the investments that Galvanize did in its online learning environment, you have to get scale. And scale is, is a different beast in the online world. You look at uh, uh, universities like Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, 
they are operating at a scale that was literally inconceivable 20 years ago in education. You know, people criticize University of Phoenix and others, but and, and these big online universities, Liberty University, they are the future. And if you think about that and what's going to happen in K-12, as people realize that, you know, we're going to have to move these things online, it's going to reward scale in a way that um, I don't think people are ready for in the traditional education consumer market. Now, speaking of K-12 education, and that means, you know, everywhere from kindergarten through 12th grade and and primary and secondary school, for the listeners here on Humane, uh, some of you may be aware that as of late January 2020, um, Galvanize is now a K-12 company. So Galvanize was acquired by K-12. And that's, I think, a lot of just what you're saying, Daniel, is to help bridge the gap of in-person online education. And, you know, K-12 is a leader with operating, you know, charter schools primarily online in over 35 states in the United States and supporting this, especially for um, different socioeconomic status students, especially those coming from non-traditional backgrounds. And I think the acquisition is so fascinating, especially because, you know, we're looking today at COVID. And if we bring it back there, we see even in New York City, for example, that the public schools have gone remote through at least April 20th, which probably means the remainder of this calendar year and all exams and everything's online. And one of the big problems that we've seen that Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo have brought up is that the accessibility and equity for online education is not there yet. And what they mean by that first and foremost is that there is at least 100,000 or more public school students who don't have iPads or uh, laptops to study school remote because, you know, their parents are working remote and there's no device or not everyone even has Internet and Wi-Fi available at their homes. So I think that partnership with K-12 is amazing because we've been focused on this online education and this movement towards accessible for all for a while. But I wanted to see your thoughts more so about that accessibility and equity that you're seeing in the market, especially with online education. Yeah, this is a huge issue. And I don't think people quite realize how important schools, K-12 schools, the physical schools are in the lives. I sit on the board of a, a K-12 school in the city. Um, these places are where you get your food. I mean, many, the, those 100,000, I, I forget the numbers, but I think something like 50% of New York students are on free and reduced lunch, which means they do not have enough money for food. And so they don't have digital connectivity. And I think K-12 does a really good job, for example, uh, and I give Nate Taylor a lot of credit for doing the acquisition. So I think it opens up a lot of opportunities for a lot of uh, students. Um, uh, does a really good job of uh, giving people the devices and the technology. I think it's a real issue, though, for traditional K-12 systems. I mean, New York is should have been in a position to figure out online education for those 100,000 students. This is very complicated, but it's solvable, right? Whether it's getting people devices, whether it's opening up uh, locations that students can go to, even in this in this time period, I think it's one of uh, many school systems have made the decision that because of, and this may be a little, hopefully not too politically incorrect, but Many school systems have made the decision, well, if we can't serve all of our students, we're going to serve none of our students. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think every public school system should be offering something like what K-12 offers to its student body 24-7 because, you know, for many parents, they do need that content. And it's, you know, 
for everybody to fall behind because you can't figure out how to serve 10% of the student body is, is a massive mistake. And I, I would strongly encourage schools to look at organizations like K-12 and other online environments to figure out how to solve these equity issues, especially if it means getting technology in the hands of these kids. It is not the right answer that, oh, these kids don't have technology, therefore we can't serve them. The right answer is let's figure out how to get technology in the hands of these kids. Uh, you know, maybe it doesn't work for first graders, second graders, but, you know, any sixth, seventh, eighth grader, most sixth, seventh, eighth graders, if you gave them an iPad right now or a cheaper Android device, they would, we, we run a university network in Africa, okay? And we, there's a called UNICAF uh, with about 20,000, 30,000 students now. I know that there's a founder of a company called Bridges. Bridges educates about, I think, three or 400,000 students in Africa leveraging very cheap Android devices. If they can figure that out in that environment, we can figure that out in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in the world and, and one of the wealthiest cities in the world. I think Seattle, uh, the school district in Seattle made a similar decision. And, and I just think it's the wrong decision. It's a, it's a failure of leadership that we can't get these devices in, and the internet connectivity in the hands of our students. And I know it's hard, but that's no excuse. And so you, you've got up, I think the K-12 system Basically, uh, K-12 gives every student in their program an iPad, is my understanding. That's right. K-12 does offer the iPads. And in addition, um, for our listeners who are live or, or listening to us in playback, so New York uh, State with the Department of Education did mention that initially it was going to be a 25,000 to 50,000 iPad rollout. And now they're planning for at least 300,000 iPads to students in the New York State system. And that, that's that's great. That is awesome. I didn't realize they had done that. That is awesome. Yeah, but it's I think it is awesome, but it's a little slow, right? So it's like we want to speed up the process. And the key is not just the iPads, but it's also the internet. You know, recently Google made an announcement that they're changing YouTube globally to a default playback of only 480 pixel, not the 1080p that most people are used to. And part of this reason is a lot of YouTube Live and different um, software, even including Zoom, has been buffering. And some of that buffering has even been a two to three second delay. I mean, can you imagine being in an online course and you cannot keep up with the professor because by the time you ask your question, they're already on to the next subject. And this is the failure. This is why I think it's important that we differentiate between the version of online education that people are experiencing this week versus what real online education is. Because Online education shouldn't have to be synchronous, right? A lot of your best learning, you know, the best way to do online learning is to actually start with a very meaty question, right, that a student has to wrestle with through a series of exercises, some of which can be synchronous, but many of which should be asynchronous. And so instead of actually sort of being able to bring those online at scale, we're bringing online 100% synchronous, basically mimicking the in-person classroom. And that's where I think you're going to see these... Um, the buffering, the the internet connectivity, the way you get around that is by parsing out and reducing the synchronous requirements and improving the asynchronous requirements. And so this is where kind of the equity issues and sort of the technology issues kind of start to intersect where you can actually create the, those environments much more effectively in a way that does increase access and equity. And part of that, as you mentioned, Daniel, improving asynchronous requirements allows learning to be more adaptable, 
You know, it's not just that we're live all the time. I think live online is a fantastic model, but a hybrid model works just as well. So whatever that percentage is, maybe it's 20% or 40% of classroom-led instructor live time with certain office hours, you know, student presentations and support, but with an additional 50 to 60% of studying at your own cadence or pace, which in fact, I think can actually be a big win for a lot of students who often when they're in the classroom, you know, they fall behind because we're all different learning styles and preferences, but now you'll have your time, your pace to keep up. Yeah. And by the way, this can be done at all levels of education. You know, when you come to our medical school, you get an iPad. And on that iPad is every lecture you'll ever watch, every book you'll ever read. And then every time you come into class, you actually get asked a series of questions based on the reading from the day or the videos you watched the day before. It's called Tiber Health. And this is this can apply to early stage education, but also even up through uh, doctors and, and medical school. And so, you know, this and the way Tiber works, it's really amazing. You, you come into class and this is actually a really good access story. We are capped at our medical schools with the number of seats that we can let people in. We can only let in, say, 90, 100. We're about to move up to 150 people per year. And we're getting thousands of applications every year. And what we did was we said, OK, for the people we get in, the next 100, 200 people, we're going to let them in to the exact same curriculum because we digitized the whole curriculum. And the people would come in, sit in the same classrooms as the MD students or, or a slightly slower paced classroom. And then they take these exams within, because we, they were taking the exams on their iPad, we were tracking everyone's results within three to six months with an R squared of about 0.8, we can predict what your board score is going to be. So we were able to admit in students who wouldn't otherwise have gotten into medical school through this methodology with this predictive analytics, with this a, you know, it's not quite AI, I should use the term, even though this is an AI podcast, but using predictive analytics and sort of rethinking the entire educational process of training to be a doctor, we're able to dramatically open the funnel. And now students who, you know, and, and if you think about how you get into medical school, right, you have to have gotten an A in organic chemistry. The medical school we operate in Puerto Rico is, is you know, effectively almost 100% first generation, low income, $30,000 a year, bilingual, we graduate about 12% of the uh, Spanish-speaking doctors in the U.S. or Hispanic doctors in the U.S., and uh, when we took over the school, before we implemented this curriculum, we had about a 65% pass rate on the boards. This year, we have about a 93% pass rate. And what we did was we brought in this new curriculum. We ran people through this master's program first that were on the, on the fence that you have highlighted here. We could predict who would do well. And we were able to admit students from historically disadvantaged backgrounds into medical school, which is kind of the, the creme de la creme of higher education. And what underpinned this was a total rethinking of the entire classroom experience, technology experience that led to a predictive analytics revolution in education, in medical school education. And now, you know, we admit students or we're starting to admit students based on their success in the MSMS on the master's degree, this kind of uh, one year program instead of the MCAT, you know, because the MCAT you know, needless to say, on many standardized exams, uh, underrepresented minorities don't do as well. And in fact, the percentage of underrepresented minorities in medical school is going down, not up at a time when our society is getting more diverse and uh, uh, care in the language that you speak is incredibly important and culturally competent care is so important. So, uh, you know, you can transform equity issues through 
technology and through predictive analytics and through AI. And unfortunately, when, and this is what's really frustrating to me about how we're entering this kind of wave two of online learning, is that it's all on Zoom. Zoom's the worst educational platform except all others. And so everyone's adopting it, but um, it's leaving out all these amazing innovations that should be driving quality, driving the equity issues. And so I'll get off my soapbox now. Sorry, David. No, I think it's super relevant. And it's again, Zoom is a good solution for, you know, webinars and for uh, a lot of, you know, live learning, but not necessarily the be all end all solution. And there's so many platforms out there, you know, we know from the canvases to other ones that are leading adaptive learning. And the whole experience, I think, a big takeaway from what you just shared is that online education is not only for software engineering and data science. It can be across the board, whether it's K-12, whether it's legal, whether it's medical, even business school. It can be online with the right tools, with the right processes and the right people set in place to help each and every student learn and to excel. And part of that is seeing what are the best learning profiles, and that could be adaptive learning. I know this has been a big trend in the industry over the last few years, and there's been some hits or misses in that space, but it's come back up again, especially given the wave of COVID, everyone's saying, how do you make this the most adaptable to my learning style and my learning preference? What's your take on the adaptive learning market and what you're seeing right now with it? So adaptive learning has been the buzzword in education broadly for the better part of 25 years. And even before then, some really great work done. Um, I'm a very famous uh, education professor who basically said there are different ways people learn. And that kind of set off a, a generational pursuit, you know, multi-generational pursuit for creating uh, content and curriculum that was more closely tied to and geared towards the individualized learner. And we failed. So almost every effort to do this has failed. And I, I think it's, uh, I'm not a technologist, but what I think is important for tech, hardcore techies to understand is learning is still one of those fundamentally human endeavors. It's actually the process of transmitting knowledge from one generation to the next is frankly what separates us from, from animals. And, and that is a fundamentally, you know, if you think about how people learn, we have had correspondence courses, we've had libraries, you can get a college degree from a library for over 150 years in the United States. That's not how people learn. So there are huge gaping holes where literally, I was just uh, telling David the other day, that the most well-funded AI-driven learning environment uh, with two, three, four hundred million dollars invested with the Silicon Valley royalty went bankrupt recently. And then another one got acquired for pennies on the dollar by McGraw-Hill. So, you know, these are, uh, we have failed. And I think the reason why is because the technologists and the educators aren't connected enough. And I'll give you an example of what has worked. Pearson's Math Lab project, which is actually run uh, most successfully at, at Arizona State University. You actually, if you see a, a where they deliver this. They actually deliver it in a big classroom with lots of computers lined up row by row. And then you have a faculty member actually walking around helping the uh, students when they run into problems. And so you've got a totally personalized learning environment, but you still need the human intervention. And so, um, you know, I think 
and where AI-driven or personalized learning has been most successful is in these entry-level classes. But even in those environments, you still usually need some significant human intervention. And so I think the kind of the next generation, we're not quite at the uh, matrix where they just implant a chip in your head and suddenly you know how to fly an airplane. Um, and, and we're not where, you know, online education or sort of AI-driven education is totally worthless and meaningless. We're at this kind of in-between stage where I think the most successful interventions are going to be those where the technologists and the education folks can kind of come together and say, here are the areas where we can deliver a high quality program that radically improves the product. And it's going to be in a hybrid format. It's like, it's like what I mentioned with that master's degree in medicine, right? It's where you have all the tools available online. You have the predictive analytics underlying it, but then you actually come to class and you actually, and, and, you know, maybe in, in the COVID environment, we're actually moving it fully online, but it's still, basically a zoom class. So not to not, you know, you do need that zoom environment for, for a lot of stuff, but you know, where you have kind of both of these tools working together in a way that actually improves efficacy. And um, I think that's kind of for the next, you know, investable period. So the next three, five, seven, eight, ten 10 years, that's going to be the focus. It's like what galvanized developed and what so many other successful organizations have developed. I'll stop there, but I, I think that's the future. That sounds right. And it's from the efficacy, what you're sharing there, Daniel, it's not just like the live in the moment learning and helping students attune to their learning preferences, but when they're not doing live. So when we're looking at this, this offline learning or this asynchronous requirements, it's how do we customize and how do we make it so that you're taking skills assessments and you're constantly getting reminded on how you can improve or how the difficulties can change. You know, uh, I am a big fan of uh, software engineering and developer operations with DevOps, particularly with cloud platforms like AWS. And, uh, you know, a few months ago, I took one of these cloud certified practitioner exams. And based on how you're performing on the questions, the questions get easier or harder. Yeah. And I think now even the SAT and the GMAT and a lot of these tests do that where they're you know measuring to what level can you rise to that occasion yeah and and those adaptive tests are are perfect example where technology works really really well right it's actually uh, psychometricians can basically prove to you that's a better model for testing because it kind of you know as you can imagine um, it kind of levels out where you're going to end up and allows you to to drive a better outcome and so I think you're going to see uh, like adaptive testing is a, is a per, and that's effectively what that Tiber example is. A lot of that is what the galvanized stuff is. I think that you will see the, the, again on the tool side. I'll give you another example on the tool side, which is quite on the straight education, but it's, it's kind of I think where you'll see AI have the most impact. We invested in a really cool company, uh, Google and Salesforce, recently backed as well, called AdmitHub. Um, which is a chatbot for admissions officers. You know, most questions that people answer in an admissions office are basic questions. How much does it cost? How many credits do I need? What happens on campus? You know, blah, blah, blah. And AdmitHub basically answers those questions in a chatbot format. And then it frees up the time for the admissions officers to help with more pastoral care, right, which is um, help people come. And, you know, there was a big New York Times article that Bill Gates kind of tweeted that featured AdmitHub because it reduced what's called summer melt, which is people who get into school, plan on going, but then don't show up because life gets in the way. You know, they, their funding dries up, 
mother gets sick, grandmother gets sick, brother has a problem, blah, blah, blah. And so at MidHub, basically reduced summer melt by something like 30%. And it, what it did was it freed up, not the teachers, but the administrators who help students to think about higher level issues by having this chatbot answer basic questions. And so I think while the actual instructional component will stay fairly human centric for the foreseeable future, I think a lot of these kind of like back office, I don't know call the admissions office back office, but sort of these non-straight academic functionality will become much more consumer friendly and, and tech driven and where AI can have a massive impact. And so if, if, you know, for your audience, my advice would be actually stay out of the classroom. Don't try to change how people learn. People, people are learning the same way for, you know, a couple millennia. Everyone's reading Sapiens these days and, you know, our, our brains are pretty hardwired by history. But where AI can really have an impact if you're, if you're not an educator or you don't have connectivity to the education side is, is these kind of back of the house functions like admissions, like we have a really interesting called Evertrue that uh, functions, uh, helps development officers. So people who get, um, you know, fundraise to make them much more effective. Um, so we're big believers in AI and education, just not necessarily in the classroom tomorrow, or if it is going to be in the classroom, it's got to be more than likely going to be human intermediated, more than likely going to be hybrid, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, I think this hybrid learning is very effective. I mean, as we've been describing today on this episode of Humane, learning is possible with good outcomes and learning can be possible both online and in person. And what we're starting to see is more of these technologies like the AI chatbots, particularly from AdmitHub, that can help students have better outcomes. You know, there's so many educational companies in this space right now, especially even in ed tech. On the future episode of Humane, we're going to be talking to Ash, who's from the EdTech Accelerator in New York City, about EdTech Week, which I go to every year. I meet a lot of founders and see what they're doing with new tools, technologies, and processes. And I know that conference is moving online, as many conferences have been as a result of COVID. But, you know, I think some of this can be good. Again, it can add more accessibility and equity to the space. In fact, you know, one of the leading pioneers in the software and data space with training and um, books and a lot of that material for self-paced called O'Reilly and O'Reilly Media, they've recently made an announcement that they have gone completely online with their conferences and they've actually completely shuttered the in-person conferences business indefinitely, which I found that quite surprising that they indefinitely took that position in the last uh, week or two. I think, you know, in-person will still work. I think we're going to come back stronger from where we are today, where we're going to have both models because, you know, quite honestly, and frankly, some people prefer in-person learning and there are those different preferences. How about yourself, Daniel? Are you more of an in-person or online kind of guy? Oh, don't ask me personal questions. I can't handle them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that people learn differently in different components, right? Sometimes I actually really prefer online learning. I mean, I, I actually do um, consume a decent amount, you know, whether it's figuring out, how, you know, I just had to figure out something in the house and like here I was Googling how to like, you know, fix a 
anyway, I um, won't go into it, but whereas, you know, I find conferences, I actually don't attend many of the sessions. Usually I find conferences really great for interacting with people and, and being able to set up a large number of meetings in a row. And so I think that I'm actually not a believer that COVID is going to radically change human existence. I mean, the the last hundred, we have not had a, I tried to explain this to my kids. We have not had a pandemic, a real true, like, you know, pandemic in about a hundred years since 1918 with the Spanish flu, which by the way, originated in Kansas city, but let's, let's not get into politics here. And, uh, you know, we've been very lucky as a society that we have not had a pandemic in about a hundred plus years. Pandemics were the norm up until recently. Pandemics were, you know, uh, you know, every five years or so, there'd be a major pandemic throughout Europe up until about 150, 200 years ago. Isaac Newton discovered gravity while quarantined during the bubonic plague outbreak from Cambridge. And by the way, during that bubonic plague outbreak, uh, 25% of the citizens of London died. Right. To put that in perspective, if that kind of a plague hit New York today, New York City alone, you would have two million dead. So we have lived in a very unique time where we uh, haven't had to deal with these types of things. But despite our history of plague and quarantine, we've always ended up coming back together as, as people in groups. And I don't think technology fundamentally changes that. And so this may be too esoteric for this podcast, but I do believe that the vast majority of humans want human-to-human interaction. And I do believe that, you know, science will figure out, even in the ages of pandemics, there was still human-to-human interaction. And I believe that um, scientists will figure out how to manage, whether it's COVID or the next one, and hopefully the next one's another 100 years away. And I think O'Reilly will restart conferences once there's demand for it. And I think there's going to be demand for it much sooner than people think. If you look at those pictures coming out of Wuhan right now, 100% everybody's out and 100% everybody's getting back with their relatives. You know, I was talking with the CEO of a company, you know, the, the question, you know, most of this is deferral, not loss, right? Most people, if you, if you got, if you're going to get married during this time, you're still going to get married. You may have gone to get a justice of the peace, but you're still going to throw a party for all your friends. Every single conference, maybe they postponed it for this year. Maybe O'Reilly is unique. Everybody's going to want to be with their friends, be with their families. The number of post-COVID, you know, raves that is going to be huge, huge in 60, 90, 120 days. And I haven't seen my parents in, you know, three weeks. They want to come visit. I'm telling them no, right? So, you know, this is everybody's going to want to come together and so I'm, I'm long human interaction, uh, maybe not the right format on this podcast, but I fun and, and it might change, it might evolve, but humans want to be with other humans. So I'm definitely an in-person learner, but I'm also an online learner. My key, and this isn't a generation, like, fine, I'm 40, whatever. My kid who's 10 hates online, you know, all he wants to do is go play soccer with his friends and, and all the rest. Kids, he doesn't want to learn online. And, you know, my daughter doesn't want to learn online. They want to be with their friends. Again, uh, defer to you uh, and, and the other technologists on, on this podcast. But I'll take the over under that in 10 years, we have as much, if not more human interaction than we have in the past.
I'm with you on that long bet. Sure, some of it may be digital, but I think we'll definitely be moving to human interaction even more so. But there is something else huge, and that is the huge skills gap, which I think will be our final topic for today's show. So we've seen a lot in software engineering and data science and different skills that need to be bridged over the last, you know, eight, 10 years as that's become a talent war, especially between major cities and and Silicon Valley. I recently uh, published an article in Towards Data Science that I think the fastest growing job in 2020 is cybersecurity analyst. I think this is one of the most underappreciated fields around privacy and security. And we're even seeing that now where there's different state actors attempting to perform hacks. And we're seeing more deep fakes coming online with the election 2020 just around the corner. Do you also see cybersecurity as a fast growing field or where's your take on where the biggest need with the skills gap is today? Well, first of all, the skills gap is massive and it is not going away even with the projected unemployment from COVID. There are 7 million unfilled jobs in the United States today. And that number is really driven by a couple of things. One, um, we have two types of frictions. We have education friction, which is people don't want to get educated because it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. And most importantly, you're not guaranteed a job. So even if you learn cybersecurity and you got your SOC 1 certificate, you're still not guaranteed a job. On the flip side, we have employers. And employers also have frictions. They don't want to hire anybody unless they've done that job before. They want people who have all the skills to be successful and hit the ground running. And so between those two, you've got sort of this massive chasm between education and employment. And I want to call out uh, technologists on this one. Google applicant tracking system AI, right? What has changed in the last 10 years is that because of the onslaught of resumes, hiring managers have turned to applicant tracking systems to Um, sort through the wheat from the chafe. And unfortunately, what this means is you you can only say good people skills so many times in a job uh, wreck. So instead, what everyone's doing is just adding more and more skills like bachelor's degrees, which may or may not be relevant, or, you know, SOC 1 analyst, which may or may not be relevant, or SOC 2, and and all these different, you know, you're in, in, you probably had your certification, all these different certifications that you would need. And the reality is most of those things can be taught relatively quickly. But we as a society have abandoned teaching those skills. And we have left the teaching of these kind of what we call last mile training oriented skills that don't, there isn't really uh, pathways to employment in these areas, whether they're cybersecurity or certain areas of, of health tech or um, linemen, you know, people who string the lines up to make sure that your, your phones and, and internet work. Um, so you've got huge, vast areas where the connectivity between education and employment have broken down. And, um, you know, we, we see a future where a series of intermediaries develop in cybersecurity, in software development, in electronic medical records, in programming pacemakers once they're in a beating heart, in all these areas where you know, they're very specific skills, Salesforce management, they're 300,000 unfilled jobs for Salesforce managers in the United States. And, you know, the shift to the secular shift to software eating the world is driving a lot of these trends. Uh, and, and I don't think they're going to go away. 
despite COVID and everything else. And what we need to develop are a series of what we call intermediaries that solve the education friction and the employment friction. These are organizations that will employ large numbers of people and will train them at the same time. These are folks that will say, you know, take the galvanized example, we'll let you into the boot camp, but then we're going to guarantee you a job at the end because we know that UPS is going to hire 30 Python developers with this skill set. And this is a lot of what we're doing right now. Our fund is basically 100% focused on uh, buying uh, potential intermediaries and adding last mile training. And we're looking for these big scale gap areas. And you know, I think coming back to like what the largest one is, sure, cybersecurity is, is going to be huge. No, no doubt that, especially with everybody working from home, there'll be more and more need for cybersecurity analysts. But how, what is the pathway if you're sitting at home and you're a recent college grad to getting one of those jobs? And right now, the answer to that is, well, maybe take an online course. Maybe there's a company called SecureSet, which has been doing a lot of this recently. It just got bought by Flatiron. There's, there's a couple of boot camps. But you know, we need kind of hundreds of thousands of these people. And they need to be American citizens to work for governmental agencies. And there are all these other. And so why aren't we recruiting recent college grads into um, large-scale training programs where they're working while they're learning. Um, and, and I think that that's going to be the future. And I think the skills gap is, is going to be with us for a long time. And, you know, what we're focused on are these kind of, you know, it's more than just cybersecurity. It's not just cybersecurity. We've identified about 50 different areas where this kind of supply demand imbalance is broken with, uh, with education. It's incredible to think that there is over 50 different areas for this imbalance with education. You know, traditionally we think of software engineering, data science, full stack development, cybersecurity, cloud and, and web ops and DevOps. Well, well you, you just you just mentioned like six. <laughs> but that's not 50, right? These these are like the six or those are the six you know about because you're in those fields. Now think about a hospital administrator. This is where, you know, if you want to think about what's happening in hospitals right now, think about like a cath lab. You know what a cath lab is? It's it's where uh, if you have a heart attack, they come in and they stench your heart. And, um, you know, talking to the largest um, staffing company for staffing cath lab techs, it's not just the nurse, right? You've got uh, three or four levels of people who are involved in stenting someone's heart. And, you know, he's got 700 unfilled jobs. And he's basically saying, look, every time there isn't one of these positions at a cath lab, the cath lab has to has to close down. So that means if you show up at a hospital and they don't have a, a you know, cath lab tech, you know, certified to X level, they've got to shut the cath lab. And people die when that happens, right? Because, you know, you have a heart attack, you can have a heart attack at midnight and you go to a hospital and they say, oh, sorry, we don't have the guy who like, you know, stents your heart that way. That would be a bummer for you. And so, uh, you know, I think around healthcare and technology are massive areas. But um, if you look at areas like en energy and power, you know, and, and these are not all uh, white collar kind of cool, cushy jobs. Uh, HVAC, people who repair your home HVAC or your small commercial HVAC system, they're pretty sophisticated skills that get paid $80,000, $100,000 a year. But we have a massive shortage of them. You know, yes, there are 50, 60, probably 100 plus areas where this kind of pathway from education to employment or or even just, hey, I want to get I need a job to to feed my family. 
there are a lot of these uh, very significant areas uh, where I think um, where you're going to see intermediaries develop. It's not just in tech. So from these 50 areas, from the trends, from everything that we've been hearing about on today's episode of Humane with you, uh, Daniel, what is your call to action or what's next that some of our listeners should think about? Uh, that's an unfair question because there's so many calls to action here. But um, I think the most important thing for this audience is software is eating the world and it's changing how everybody operates. But at the end of the day, things around education and workforce are very human driven. And I think that there's a push to say, oh, we're going to automate the job search process, or there's a push to say we're going to automate the education process. But at the end of the day, most people hire people they know. And even the Amazons, which has to hire 100,000 people, you know, they are still primarily network-driven organizations and human network-driven organizations. So I would encourage you as you think about the software you develop and the um, everyone wants to get into education or workforce to realize that these are some of the biggest decisions people make in their lives, and they still make them based on very human interactions with other humans. And that's beautiful on one hand, but complex on the other. Daniel Pianco from Achieve Partners. Thank you for being with us today on Humane. My pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.